I want to start this morning by sharing a story that I, I came across quite a while ago. And some of you may have heard it before. But it's a great picture for us, I think, of what we're looking at. Before the turn of the 20th century, an asylum, uh, a home for people that were mentally unwell, in the suburbs of Boston, housed severely retarded and disturbed individuals. One of those patients was a girl who was simply called Little Annie. She was totally unresponsive to others in the asylum. The staff tried everything possible to help her, yet without success. Finally, she was confined to a cell in the basement of the asylum and given up as hopeless. A Christian woman worked at the asylum and she believed every one of God's creatures needed love, concern, and care. So she decided to spend her lunch hours in front of little Annie's cell, reading to her and praying that God would free her from her prison of silence. Day after day, the Christian woman came to little Annie's door and read, but the little girl didn't respond. Months went by. The woman tried to talk with little Annie, but it was like talking to an empty cell or a wall. She brought little tokens of food for the girl, but they were never received or eaten. Then one day, a brownie was missing from the plate the caring woman retrieved from little Annie's cell. Encouraged, she continued to read to her and pray for her. Eventually, the little girl began to answer the woman through the bars of her cell. Soon, the woman convinced the doctors that little Annie needed a second chance at treatment. They brought her up from the basement and continued to work with her. Within two years, little Annie was told she could leave the asylum and enjoy a normal life. As we continue looking at who we are in Christ, I wonder if we have ever felt so hopeless, so beaten down, so crushed, that we just don't know how to respond. I wonder if there's times in our lives when we have tried everything in our power to fix everything, to rectify past wrongs as we talked about last week, to make up for lost time, to be who we think we're supposed to be, but we get caught up doing it in our own strength. And as we do it in our own strength, we realize that we're very tired and exhausted and weary. We need help. We need love. It's that simple word that Christians throw around often. In fact, I was reminded last Saturday that I love to use the word love. And I do. Love is this wonderfully rich gift that we've been given. But inside the church, for those in Christ, if we were given a report card consisting of two areas, I wonder how we do. The first would be the question of, have we experienced the love of God in our lives? And the second would be, do we give that away? And that's where we find ourselves as we come to look at the last half of Romans chapter 8. Now, Romans chapter 8 is theologically massive. 
thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages have been written about these 39 verses. And in the few short minutes we have together this morning, I am not going to be able to cover everything in the last 21 verses. That is not my goal. But my goal is to help us to look at the big picture that Paul is getting at as he walks us through a very distinct process of reality and of God. Sometimes we miss it if we're not looking. So what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to read the scripture to you this morning. If you brought a Bible, that would be great. Uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to start with verse 18. It's It's a lengthy scripture and there's lots of questions there. But I'd like you to look with me and listen well. And maybe if, 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 if they can, I'll have the... Oh, they can. They're good. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to fr- frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we, eager, as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose, excuse me. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine 
or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, there is so much here in this passage. I ask that you would guide our thoughts, that we would be attentive to your words. I pray that my words would not get in the way and that your Holy Spirit would fall mightily upon us and that you would teach us this morning. For in our weakness, you are strong. And we love you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, as we think about this story, this not so much a story as this picture that Paul has painted, we've got to understand who the guy is that's writing it. What do we know about the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the church in Rome? We know that he has had anything but an easy life. In terms of worldly sacrifice, worldly success. He started off really well, trained by the best of the best, a student of Gamaliel. The guy was smart. He was in the right social circles. He knew the right things. And if you've read his writings, he's brilliant. He has a legal mind that is like none other. He has tremendous knowledge. But then, on his way to persecute Christians... He encounters the risen Lord and is asked the very simple question, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To which Saul at that point has no answer. And for the first time, Saul's eyes are opened to the hope that is found in Christ Jesus, to the love that is found in Christ Jesus. And his life is radically changed from one of status, a Pharisee among Pharisees, a Roman of high regard. This guy had the package and turned his back and said, nothing is more important from this point forward than proclaiming Christ to all who would listen. And that's what he did. From the moment his eyes were opened, from the moment he saw the light of Christ and was transformed, he began preaching and didn't stop until he died. But as he followed God wherever God led, an interesting thing happened. Life got really hard for the Apostle Paul. As you heard me tell the children... Most of us wouldn't get real excited about knowing that our life included having to be lowered out of a city in a basket, being stoned, which if you're not sure what that means, it does not mean being drunk in in biblical context. It means having so many stones thrown at you that they left him for dead. They thought they had killed him. He survived that. Tremendous verbal persecution everywhere he went. Can you imagine every time you speak, there is a group standing there waiting to oppose everything you say. There is tremendous mental anguish when that happens. It's tough to deal with. It is hard to handle. And so he dealt with that. Then, 
He deals with being naked, being cast out of cities, being criticized, being accused of raising riots in cities to where he has to run for his life with nothing. He has no steady income. He makes tents on the side to provide money for himself when the, the church isn't able to support him. But all the while, all while doing this, God continues to allow him to proclaim the good news to a very specific group of people. The Gentiles. I really like that fact. You know why I like that fact? Because as far as I'm aware, I am not Jewish. But God, in his rich love for us, sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And this news first went to the Jews. You hear the Apostle Peter speaking often to the Jews. But then God charged Paul to go not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And the church grew and spread far beyond any wild imagination could grasp. And despite great persecution, great personal loss, the guy was even bitten by a snake. And you know what he did? He shook it off. And he walked on. Oh, by the way, he got bitten by a snake while he was shipwrecked on an island. If we look at our life, we don't think, Oh, man, I hope someday I get to be stoned, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, accused of falsely for all sorts of things. No. That's the perspective of the person writing these words. So let me ask you a question. How's your life? How are you? Think about that for a second and then listen to where Paul starts. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is a man that knew pain. He knew physical pain. Have any of you ever had a kid throw a rock at you? One. It hurts. Rocks are rocky. Right? They hurt. They are not pleasant. He knew physical pain. He'd been bitten by a snake. He had endured much. We even know that he had a thorn in his flesh that caused him great discomfort of some sort. We don't know what that was. There's lots of theories. But Paul knew pain. He also knew suffering at the hands of fellow God-fearing people He was accused of great things. He was persecuted often everywhere he went. He knew agony. He knew heartache, wishing those that he'd shared the light and the love of Christ with would obey and respond, but often they didn't. They accused and attacked instead. And he said, in spite of all that, it is nothing compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. What's he mean? Simply, Paul had every reason to look at his life and say, well, that stunk. That was horrible. Poor me. But instead, as you read throughout Paul's writings, throughout his letters to churches, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Here you read, the suffering now is nothing compared 
to the future glory that I am in store, that is in wait for me. You see, Paul understood something that we in the church today have so sorely missed. We tend to think that this is all there is. Now, in our minds, we know that there's more. We get that, yes, I'm looking forward to heaven. But we kind of just look at it like as that. But in everything we do, in all of our actions, in all of our behaviors, in all of our attitudes, in all of our mindsets, we seem to think that this life is where all of our treasure is. That we've got to do all we can to build up mental, physical, monetary, relational treasures here on earth. And then when things go wrong and our expectations aren't met according to whichever of these treasures we're seeking to build, our lives are brought way down or to a halt. We just don't know how to process. And I'd like to say that we see that among those that don't yet know Jesus, but we see it just as often among those that have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, that get caught up in the lie of this world that is that famous hashtag says right now, if you're a Twitter fan, you only live once. Now that is very true. But for us in Christ, our life is eternal. And we look forward to so much more than the sufferings, than the pain, than the successes we see right now. Our lives are so much more than the simple hashtag that says you only live once. Wouldn't it be better if we said Y-O-L-E, we only live eternally? Wouldn't it be better if we began to shift our focus toward the great and mighty God that tells us things like he is preparing a place for us, that our treasures are in heaven, that we will be given new bodies, that we will be restored to what was always intended, that this world will be restored to the way God intended before sin had broken the mold. We look forward to the restoration of all things. So when you get to verse 19 and 20, you hear this. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. There's a lot there. But I love the picture you see in verse 19. The creation, all that's around us, all of this created world. He's not referring so much to humanity here as all of the world around us. And he says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Those that have been adopted as sons of God. Creation waits for them to be revealed, waits for them to be restored. Now, when it talks about them eagerly waiting, if you go back to the Greek and you look what it actually says there and how it's best translated, think about standing on your tippy toes, looking anxiously, trying to see what's on the other side. 
When I was a kid, I was a huge baseball fan. Okay, I still like baseball an awful lot. If you don't know what it is, it's like cricket, only shorter. But anyway, we lived in a town where we had a minor league baseball team. They were called the Auburn Astros. And I played in little league baseball. It's for the little kids. You play baseball, you try not to hurt anybody, and you have a great time. But where our practices were, were right next to the field that the Auburn Astros played on. And they, were, they weren't a very good team. They were like uh, double A, so they were okay. But what we would do, we would sneak over after practice before our moms and dads came and got us. And there was a fence that was kind of short. And if you know me, you know I like to climb anyway. And so we would climb up and we would stick our heads over just to see the Auburn Astros practice for a minute. And we love doing that. We might get to see a player that might be in a major leagues at some point. Now, very few of them did because they, they, didn't, they didn't get that chance. But we loved that eager anticipation of getting to see just one player. Paul tells us that creation all around us is eagerly anticipating the glory that will be revealed when we are revealed and redeemed and restored as sons and daughters of the Most High God. It goes on to say that in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So if you follow the train of thought, and if you followed where Paul has gone from Romans chapters 5, 6, 7 up to here, you know that Paul has dealt with the issue of sin. We talked last week about his covering uh, of the idea of justification, that we who are in Christ have been justified, made right with God. And here he's telling us that creation through these birth pains is looking forward right up to now. They're, they're experiencing the pains of birth. They're suffering a momentary pain of decay, of breaking down. Why is that? Is the tree out there that you see fading away sinned? No, a tree cannot sin. But the sin that has been in us since Adam has, has broken the world. And our world is in decay right up until the present time. That's what Paul has been teaching us as he's walked us through this passage. But the interesting thing here is Paul's choice of words. Notice he says the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. If I were to ask any of you mothers to tell me about the birth of especially your first child, you would tell me lots of things. And if I asked a dad to tell me and show me pictures of the birth of your first child, or any of your children, you would show me lots of pictures of what they looked like once they were born, right? Two things I've never heard people tell me lots of stories of. I've never had a dad sit down with me and show the minute-by-minute minute picture, photographic dialogue of his wife giving birth. Never seen it. Have you? I don't think so. No. We look at the finished product, right? Some of you dads, me included, didn't even get to watch the birth of your children, right? Moms... 
you don't typically think about how great that pain was, do you? Now, I don't know. I am not a, a mother. I have never experienced what my wife has done three times amazingly. It boggles my mind. But she doesn't sit here and talk about how great the pain of birth was. No, what? She enjoys our children. Right? It was that moment right after when I held, I'll never forget, holding Isaiah up to her. She didn't have her glasses on. She couldn't see anything. And she said, what's he look like? And I said, a boy. (laughs) But you see, creation here groans in expectation, knowing that this isn't all there is, that great things are coming, that this world will be restored. But you and I and so many Christ followers today get caught thinking our momentary pain is real as it is. Things like cancer, things like the betrayal of a spouse, things like the hurt of sin from others around us, they are so real. And they do hurt. And they do cause great suffering. But you know what? The scriptures teach us, for those of us in Christ, they are also seasonal. They will not last. They are temporary. And there is so much more to come. Do we believe that? Do we truly believe and live out eager expectation for what is yet to come? Do we do everything we can? If we know Jesus has told us that in this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the ends of the earth and then the end shall come, well, the direct correlation of that would be that then... Okay, if he said this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the ends of the earth, then the end will come, and we want the end to come to enjoy glory with him for all eternity, what does that mean for us? Maybe we should be preaching the gospel to all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you know what happens? We get caught up in our own stuff our own junk. And we get so busy programming our lives that we don't have time for relationships. We don't have time to invite someone to Alpha. Alpha is not the end-all, save-all. But it is a wonderful way to initiate conversations with those that don't yet know Jesus Christ. And I would love to see us all involved in whether it's Alpha or just telling them yourself or finding ways to connect people with the love of Christ. Because those outside of Christ are groaning. But unfortunately for those outside of Christ, there isn't a groaning toward expectation. There's just suffering. We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. Wait, Mike, last week you told us that we've already been adopted. You've been saying that this whole series. Now now Paul says we wait eagerly for it. Didn't he just say we've been adopted and we cry, Abba, Father? Yes, on both counts. Yes, the moment you accepted Jesus Christ and your Lord and Savior, you were adopted into the family of God. You received the Holy Spirit, you've been justified, and you were in the process of sanctification, growing to be more like Christ. That is the expectation upon us, and absolutely none of that can be done in our own strength. 
not a little. But our adoption will be made complete when Christ returns. Our adoption will be fulfilled when Christ returns and brings us into the new heaven and the new earth and allows us to enjoy eternity with him for all time as co-heirs with him, sons and daughters of the Most High God. Inwardly, we're wasting away. I have felt that for the past few weeks. You know I've not felt great. I still don't. But it doesn't matter. This is just for a time. If I get 40 years out of life, great. If I get 80, great. But I can't wait for eternity. So much greater. And I want to bring everyone I can with me. Do you? Do you get excited about that? What about in our weakness? How do we handle those times when even though we have done our best, even though we have sought with all the strength God can give us to live in the Spirit, we feel so weak. We, we don't even know what to do. How do we handle that? Well, the amazing thing is, if you read throughout this, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't do it ourselves. We don't know what we ought to pray for. Have you ever felt that way? You're so distraught in spirit. You are so weak. You are so empty. You just don't know what to pray. Well, God, in his great love for you, in his great love for us, gave us the Holy Spirit to walk with us, to teach us, to counsel us, to convict us of sin. And here we are taught to intercede, to pray on our behalf with words, with groans that words can't even express. So you see this picture of the Holy Spirit at work and alive in us is praying on our behalf, is praying when we don't even know how to pray. And then as we read further down, we're told that Jesus, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us at the right hand of God. God, in his great love for us, says, you will suffer. Count it a privilege, an honor to suffer even as a little bit as Christ suffered while on earth. But know in that suffering, in those struggles, in those darkest times, you are not alone. Even when you don't know how to pray, even when you, you desperately wish things would change and you don't know what to do, the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. Jesus, at the right hand of God the Father, intercedes on our behalf. To which I say, wow. That's amazing. Next week we're going to continue our study and we're going to look at the, the next half of this. But today, I wonder if we truly believe that God loves us so much that not only did he give us 
his one and only son, his only begotten son, to die, to carry our sins, to suffer far more than you and I have suffered. But I wonder if we live in the revelation that he didn't just die for our sins, but he rose again victoriously and invited all who would believe in him to be adopted as sons and daughters of him, loved by him, knowing that he's given us the Holy Spirit to walk with us, to counsel us. As good as advice as man can give, no advice is better than that which the Holy Spirit gives us. And the amazing thing is, as you look at this passage, not one ounce of this has anything to do with what we do. Have you noticed that? Romans 8 is all about who God is and what he has done. The life he invites us to live in the spirit. Next week, we're going to look at that wonderful, wonderful concept of foreknowledge and predestination. And you're all going to wonder, well, how can we be predestined and still have choice? And I say, because he's God. God, in his great love for us, has a plan. And he knows the outcome. And the outcome is secure. For those of us in Christ, we will forever enjoy his presence. These pains, these sufferings, this instability, this insecurity, this heartache, this disease is nothing compared to with the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord for all eternity. So I wonder where you are today. I wonder if you can say full well, I'm struggling, I'm suffering, I'm doing great! But it's all because of the Lord in any situation. And I will give him all the glory. Because what we don't know is what God has yet in store for us. We know eternity is going to be like nothing we could imagine. But while we walk this earth, we are called to make disciples. We are called to live by the Spirit. Look at the first half of Romans 8. And just every once in a while, we get glimpses of how he might use us for kingdom work. But some of us desperately just need to know the reality of the truth that you are loved. You can't do it on your own. You are loved so much that God has invited you into an eternity with him. You are loved so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever would call on his name might have life to the fullest. You are loved so much that Jesus left the Holy Spirit behind to counsel us, to teach us. You are loved so much that God convicts us of sin, that corrects our wrong. You are loved so much that all of creation eagerly stands on tiptoes looking forward to the day when we are completely renewed in him. You are loved so much that nothing this world throws at you can separate us from the love of God. We'll get to that more next week. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I know we've got a long way to go in Romans 8. But I pray that as we looked at these first few verses this morning, we would remember full well that we look forward 
in eager anticipation for what is to come, that this isn't all there is to life, that you've invited us to so much more for all eternity. Lord, help us to bask in the greatness that is your love and to pass that along to others.